Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Bizarre and Fascinating Details. I am one of your hosts, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me live and in, I don't know where you're at with your dad. <laughs> yeah, I'm in, yeah, I'm in Birmingham now. <laughs> Somewhere in Alabama. Yeah. Um, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, things have kind of slowed down a little bit, which is nice. So I'm actually able to catch up and catch up on work and still not caught up on school, but you know, that's a problem for future Darcy, but, um, <laughs> it's always something like the, you, yeah. life just can't be perfect. Seriously. Um, but yeah, I'm doing fine. I hear ya. I started the new job too. And <gasps> how's it going? Um, well for the first week I really didn't have a computer. Um, mm. I got it partway through the week and then there's a security card that we have to use. And it showed up, but it was somebody else's card. Oh. So I wasn't able to get on to any of the networks or anything, which is fun. So, so I didn't were do you anything. able to do any work? No, no. <laughs> oh. Um, I finally was able to do some work this week, but it was a short week because of 4th of July. Right. right? Um, and... Fourth of July was kind of weird around here. It was just the weather was kind of wonky, and mm. we were going to go out into our little gazebo on the river, and we tried to go out there, and it had been just, like, overrun and inundated by spiders. Ew! Yeah. Um, no. They were all over everything. They were just, like, cray-cray. Like, they had just... they. It were everywhere. So I was like, I'm going inside. <laughs> uh, so Mike had gotten kind of some bug spray and was sort of spraying down the area and whatnot. Um, but it was just, they were all over the chairs. They were like mm, three or four on each chair. I was just like, no. <laughs> I can I'd handle... sooner burn the gazebo down than go sit yeah. in it now. Yeah, I can like sometimes deal with like certain kinds of bugs like mosquitoes or whatever which we had seen um kind of no cms too had kind of bitten us a little bit when we'd been out there the first time but i can't deal uh-huh. with spiders like uh-uh. nope um and mm-hmm. then um i was sitting in bed this was like two nights ago and just happened to glance down and saw a little mouse no run across the room in our bedroom no and i was just like what (laughs) i mean we'd seen them kind of on the counter and we'd called the exterminator and they'd come in and they'd plugged some of the holes and stuff um from the outside so that they couldn't get in but yeah we saw it in our bedroom and like you're moving right no (laughs) um i think that it got it was sort of stirred up because we got a brand new bed and so we had like rearranged stuff and moved stuff around in our bedroom um, so we got some more traps and um, called the exterminator again to come out. But it's just like these old houses, there's just so many spots for them to get in. And we don't eat or anything in our room, but yeah. like I, it was bizarre. It was real small <clears throat> and it, I barely saw it. I just kind of had a glance over and it had like <laughs> across the floor um, towards the door in our room. So. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. Plus, we've been tiling and everything. Um, so maybe just all the, the banging and the sawing and stuff has stirred them from their little hiding spots and brought them mm. out to come say hi. They can say bye. <laughs> no, I don't see. 
You had mice at your last place too. You yeah. Need to... Well, the thing is, I talked to a couple people out here as well, and it's like they're just everywhere. And it's weird to see them out in the summer. Like usually they'll be outside or whatever, or down like where the food is. But like, it right? Was like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> nope. Absolutely not. Yeah. So we've got to get a creature or something. Yes. Yeah, you absolutely do. If you're seeing them, then they're like. There's then how many are you not seeing? Yeah. Ew, uh. I mean, by the time you see them, usually like, <clears throat> there's like an infestation. So. Oh, no. But, God. I mean, like I said, the thing is, these old houses, like, it's impossible not to have them. And I was talking, because we went to like a neighborhood gathering, um, and I kind of asked about it um, with some of the other people, and they're like, yeah, they're, they're just everywhere. You either have to have an animal that catches them, or you have to get an exterminator out to professionally do it and come out regularly, or you have to just put traps everywhere, which, gosh, like, ugh, no. Anyway, yeah. it's pretty icky. Um, updates on the Lori Vallow case. So she oh, now boy. is indicted in the 2019 killing of her fourth husband, so they've added that. Which, you know, it's kind of, we knew it was coming. Right. She's already charged with the deaths of her two <clears throat> children, and then she's accused of conspiring with her brother to kill her ex-husband. And her brother also died, right? Yeah. And they can't, you know, obviously they can't charge him because right. he's dead. But um, did he die under suspicious They said he died of natural causes. Did he, they, did he now? Yeah. They, but they also say Chad Daybell's wife died of natural causes so i think that well that one aren't they looking that one into that yes, one again okay. they're like they've pulled that one out um interesting a lot of people dying around this lori vallow uh-huh. and he had filed for divorce uh, before mm-hmm. he died um her brother called 911 july 11 2019 and said that he fatally shot charles fallow but now he had claimed self-defense and he was never charged mm-hmm. um he died in December 2019 of natural causes involving a blood clot, oh, which is okay. interesting. Um, in May, Lori Vallow and her husband were charged with, with the murdering of her two kids that were last seen in 2019. So all this is kind of right. happening in this little bubble around this period of time around these two individuals. Um, that is a complex, difficult case, the prosecutor said, and the nature of time that's going to take to properly investigate and solve is going to be pretty extensive. Um, in addition to the charges relating to the children, Chad Daybell has been charged in Idaho with first degree murder and the death of his wife, Tammy Daybell. So really, yeah, that's going on as well. She died in October, 2019 at the age of 49, which was really weird. They also said, you know, some kind of strange stuff going on Mm -hmm. in the background there. And then Lori and Chad got married a few weeks later. And wasn't Lori originally from Arizona? Like, isn't that where her brother lived? I don't know where she's originally from, but, um, Tammy Daybell's death was initially ruled natural as well. So, like, it's yeah. weird that all these natural deaths are yeah. also occurring around them. But hers was later ruled a <clears throat> homicide as well. Um, and this was back in May. That whole thing went down. Mm-hmm. Um, Daybell is also charged with insurance fraud relating to her death. And mm-hmm. Vallow has been charged with conspiracy in her death, according to prosecutors. 
But it's interesting, Vallo earlier this month was ordered to be treated in a mental health facility after being found unfit to stand trial for right. concealment of evidence charges that she faced like initially. Yeah, so this is going to be bonkers. There's a lot of stuff going on. So I'm wondering what they're going to do with these latest charges, given the fact that they can't try her for anything because she's unfit to stand trial. She's like in a mental health facility. So I guess she's going to stay there and receive treatment until they can figure out you know, if she's fit to stand trial, which could possibly be never. She could just be cuckoo forever. Right. I mean, yeah, typically, like, if, if they feel like it's something that can be treated, I mean, they're, what they're, I mean, this is how it works. They're, they're not really going to treat her. They're just going to treat her to the point where she can stand trial. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? They're not really addressing the mental health issue. They just want to be able to put her on trial. But the reason I was asking if she was from Arizona is because I was I was thinking that that would like make the case even more difficult because they were in Idaho or he was in Idaho and I felt like her her fourth husband died in Arizona and her brother died in Arizona and then they went to Hawaii and like they were just all over the place with like trying to find the kids and all of that so like it's just it, there's got to be like so much discovery that's just that's gonna take so long yeah. It's a pretty complicated um, case, just in general, yeah. um, with so many different people involved and so many deaths and so yeah. many locations. So obviously they're doing a lot of searching, but I think the most important places are in that Idaho location where the kids yeah. were. Yeah, for sure. So. Interesting case. It's continuing to unwind. We'll keep you guys posted as that happens, but obviously mm -hmm. things been... Oh, there's another portion of that as well. I guess... Um, she has requested a change of venue as well. She's claiming that mm -hmm. a fair and impartial jury can't be had in the county where the kids' bodies were buried. Yeah, I mean, I can see that argument. She is from Arizona, yeah. Okay. Um, but she asked the judge to move her trial to a different county, claiming she can't currently receive a fair trial. Her attorney, Mark Means, filed the charge of venue motion June 28th, so a couple weeks ago. Um, evidently, though, it's thin on details, and the filing does not provide a specific reason for Vallow's request beyond saying that a fair and impartial jury um, can't be had in Fremont County, Idaho, where the case is currently filed. It promises that future filings will provide more information, um, but it's supported by papers and pleadings. Um, blah, 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 blah. Vallow, 47, is charged with murder murdering her two children. The remains of Joshua J.J. and Tylee, 16, were found on the property of Vallow's husband, Chad Daybell, on June 2020. Dable is also charged with murder in the children's death. So, interesting. That is interesting that they already filed a change of venue request. I mean, I guess it's just more legal, like mumbo-jumbo. Um, interesting. Um, Vallow's attorney also filed additional motions on June 28th, one reserving her rights and defenses, specifically the right to change the court's jurisdiction over the case, even if the motion transfer is granted, and a request for specific discovery regarding autopsy reports, witnesses, and communications regarding the charges against her. Um, she also requested oral arguments and a hearing date. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So maybe they're moving forward with that charge, yeah. but the other one she's been ruled unfit. I don't know. This is very, very interesting. That sounds complicated. But he's, you know, filing charges in the background, trying to preserve her rights, I guess. But yeah. maybe she, they're doing that with the expectation that, you know, they're going to treat her enough to get her up and running and get this trial going. Yeah, I guess. But, I mean... 
if you're sane enough to like freaking plan all this out and scheme and kill so many people and bury them and get everything like going on in the background with all these different people involved, then you've got to be sane enough to like go on trial. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think the argument was that she was not sane she, enough to commit the act. religious beliefs. <clears throat> but like, yeah, it could be something like she had, maybe she had a previous mental health diagnosis. And then when she started getting into this, Armageddon, end of the world, whatever, with this Chad Daybell guy, she stopped taking her medicine or something like that. You know, it could be something like that. Yeah. Too. Well, I think, you know, they're, they're laying the foundation for some stuff that's mm-hmm. going to go down. And I don't know if they're going to blame her for everything and he's going to blame her. I don't know. But this is this case is going to be I kind of feel like they're going to blame each other. Probably, but so far they've been supportive of each other. They've had phone calls and conversations that have been recorded that the news media have played that these two have been, continue to support one another. Yeah, I just don't know how long that, like, you know, how strong is that relationship when you actually go to trial for murder? You know what I mean? If you're crazy, who knows? (laughs) Well, if you're crazy, you don't go to trial for murder. No. That's no. the whole thing. So it's uh, some wild stuff going on yeah. in that case. A lot of uh, legal motions going back and forth. Um, we'll see. We'll see what yeah. happens. But they've all, he's been charged in his previous wife's death, and she's now being indicted in the charges on her previous husband's death and the kids and everything else. So unfortunately, her brother can't be charged with anything because right. he's dead. But interesting stuff going on. We'll keep yeah. you all posted. Um, today, I want to talk about an interesting case as well. Um, and I feel this kind of on a weird, deeper level for some reason. Um, but I want to talk about the case of Betty Broderick. Mm, okay. It's a doozy. Yeah. Betty Broderick was born Elizabeth Ann Basiglia in 1947, and she grew up in Bronxville, New York. Mm-hmm. So she's a New York gal. Six kids in this family, this Oof. Roman Catholic family. Oof. She was in the middle the third kid in that okay. uh, family of kids. But you know how the Roman Catholics are. I mean, they didn't really believe in the birth control. and Still don't. So they, they had a lot of large families. And yeah. they were very strict families as well. Her yeah. mom, Martita, and her dad, Frank, owned a successful plastering business with relatives. Um, her mother was Irish-American, and her dad was Italian. So you got that oh. Catholic so like, family well, with both, Italians both and Irish. Yeah. And... There's uh, some some stuff going on there with those two mixing yeah, together. Yeah, I bet that's very traditional, like a traditional Catholic family. Yeah. So Betty's parents, Betty's parents, super strict, and they expected a lot of their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, she basically would, and and this is I think the way many early Roman Catholic families were, but they trained their girls to be housewives and they trained their boys to be providers, and there was very mm-hmm. strict sort of um, rules for the sexes with each mm-hmm. one of the, w- whether they be male or female. Yeah. But she sort of said at one point that you go to Catholic schools, you be careful dating, you find a good Catholic man, you support him while he works, be blessed in your later years and have beautiful grandchildren. So she mm-hmm. definitely had a way that she was raised to be. And she kind of embraced that as she was, as she really didn't have a lot of choices. I mean, when you yeah, come from her a family like that. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're there, and that's what you do. Yeah. Um, she graduated from Maria Regina High School in Hartsdale, New York in 1965, which is interesting because it's, you know, getting into the period of the sexual revolution, but mm-hmm. still with that conservative 50s lean to it. 
Yeah, and especially um, if she's still in like a smallish town. Yeah, and you know that's the one where you don't have sex until you get married, mm-hmm. and it's very very strict. But she went to College of Mount Saint Vincent in the Bronx. Um, she earned a degree in early childhood education. She actually See, was that's in pretty advanced, or that's pretty um, progressive for her to go to. She college was in an accelerated place. program too. Wow. Um, so. Although she was raised in this sort of traditional way, she was clearly intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she also earned a minor in English. Um, okay. So she's got this traditional leaning. She's got this path that she's expected to follow as a good Catholic girl. But yet she's also educated. But she's educated in a career that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got that early childhood education. So not only will it help her raise her kids, but she could potentially get a job to help support her man as he gets his career underway. Yeah. Right. So 1965, she's fresh out of school. She meets her future husband, Dan Broderick, at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Oh, man. The most Catholic of the Catholic universities. Exactly. <laughs> and Dan was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, he I was- love Pittsburgh. He was also part of a very large Irish Catholic family. Yeah. Um, So she's got the Irish Catholic and the Italian Catholic, and he's just the straight-up large Irish Catholic family, stereotypical Mm -hmm. large Irish Catholic family. And he was the oldest in his family. So these two dated for a little while and then married April 12th, 1969. Okay. Um, And they got married in New York, and Broderick returned from the honeymoon pregnant with her first child. Wow. So that's like your good Catholic girl. I was going to say, that's probably planned, yeah. Yeah, you wait until you get married to have sex, and And then then you get married on your honeymoon. Pregnant. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, Their first child was a daughter named Kim, and she was born in 1970. Um, And then she had, she gave birth to four more of the children. She had a daughter, Lee, that was born in 1971. She had a son, Daniel, born in 1976. And a son, Rhett, born in 1979. And then they had a boy who died four days after birth. Mm. So a lot of kids. And yeah. then she's like, bing, bing, bing. Um, they're not super close. The two oldest ones, I think, were pretty close together. Um, mm-hmm. But the two youngest ones, there's a little bit of time in between them. But she's, you know, obviously doing her duty as a good Catholic woman mm-hmm. to, you know, bear children. Um, but after her oldest daughter's birth... Dan completed his uh, MD degree. So he was officially a doctor um, after their oldest daughter was born. Um, And I think that that was something that was pretty impressive. Um, I think a lot of, you know, Irish Catholic good girls would have been very happy to be the wife of a doctor. And that was sort of a thing that everyone aspired to be during that time period, I think. I think a lot of people would like to be the spouse of a doctor. Yes. Um, but he wasn't happy with that. And I think he sort of got into it and realized much like myself, um, after I graduated, I realized it wasn't what I thought it was going to (laughs) be. And I was not happy. Yeah. The job, um, getting a degree, you work so hard for it, especially an advanced degree, like legal or medicine. Sometimes when you actually get finished with everything, it's a little bit anticlimactic and you realize Mm -hmm. it's not exactly the way you thought it was going to be. I'd like to add PhD to that list too. (laughs) (laughs) So he announces then that he wants to go to law school. My gosh. 
and combined his medical expertise with law degree. So he's thinking malpractice. Like that's and really he's, awesome. He's, he's already got really his eye on that. But like, how do you pay for all that with that many kids too? Not only that, but he enrolled in Harvard Law School. Oh yeah, one of your cheaper, more affordable options. Yeah, which, you know, it's hard enough to get into that school, yeah. let alone pay for it when you actually do get in. Right. Um, but that was after the, they, they only had one kid at that point. So it wasn't like they had all this whole family, but during this time at the schools when she's having, having additional kids. children, yeah, which leaves Betty as the main, you know, the breadwinner. Mm. And she's working her tail off while he's attending law school. And he got student loans. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, student loans don't necessarily mean you're taken care of. You usually have nope. a combination of different things. You know, you yeah. work, you do work study, you scrape, you scrimp, you, you know, you yeah. really, money's tight. Money's yeah. extremely tight. So they've got a small family. Betty's working her tail off to try to help provide for them and get his get him through law school essentially mm-hmm. and you know that's challenging as heck he's studying extremely hard trying to do all that he can to kind of make a name for himself and when you're mm-hmm. in that kind of an atmosphere who you know who you talk to the training programs you take this internships that you get mm-hmm. are vital to and, your position when you graduate and you can attest to this because i mean i've heard that law school is like notoriously competitive Oh, like it's even in like, the summer, if you're not taking classes, like you have to do prestigious internships. And I mean, it's just yes. like, and yeah. if you don't, then you can kiss a good job goodbye when you graduate. Yeah. You'll be working for peanuts if you don't do those things. God, that's so crazy. So you know that he was doing that and she was supporting him in the background. And in the Netflix special, like it talks a, a lot more from her perspective in the Dirty John portion mm-hmm. of it. And granted, some of it is kind of, embellished a little bit Mm -hmm. to make it a little bit more interesting but you know he was doing the thing where you'd go have drinks with people and you'd Mm -hmm. you know have dinner with people and try to impress people um and she was the one that was always at home taking care of the kids and he's out you know having drinks and and buttering people up and making those connections and you know he's having a little bit more fun with it than she probably is stuck at home with kids and morning sickness and all kinds of other junk on her side but and it's the 70s case, so like that's just what you're supposed to that's do. what you do yeah. and that the whole man's world type of thing was huge back then particularly yeah. in the legal communities because that was who dominated it middle mm-hmm. class white men were who dominated the legal field mm-hmm. and that's he came from harvard law school which is like right in the mecca of white middle class men <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. or upper upper middle class or upper class white yeah. men so in any case, um, he got hired pretty quickly um, by a San Diego law firm after he graduated, which, you know, mm-hmm. who wouldn't snap up a Harvard Law School graduate? And he had good, good standing with his class. Mm-hmm. And they moved to La Jolla, mm. <laughs> which is a bougie, very upper class portion of San Diego. Yes, it on is. the water. Beautiful, beautiful area. But it's definitely one of the, the upper crust mm-hmm. areas of San Diego. And so the family moves to It's a status address. It's the 90210 of, of San Diego. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some good law firms in San Diego, believe it oh, or not. Oh, sure. It's interesting because the currently, I don't know what it was like back in the 70s when he obtained his position or in the early 80s. The, the legal field in San Diego does not pay well. 
compared to Los Angeles, compared to San Francisco, See, so compared crazy. to a lot of other areas. But maybe in the, at this time in history, it did. Like when yeah. I moved to San Diego, um, I, I made a decent wage when I first started working. But my wage when I left San Diego last year was the same as when I got there 15 yeah. years before that. It was crazy. That it was so yeah. weird. It was almost like they were like, hey, you're in this beautiful place. This is your the cost of living here. Is you're you not going to get paid what you're worth. You should be thankful. Field. Yeah, no. Yeah. So it doesn't work that case, way. Though, it's expensive as hell to live out there. The area that Dan went into, he's in medical malpractice, Dan Broderick, Big is money one that. that is, yeah, huge, extremely prestigious. And it was a very kind of um, very specific field. It's a mm-hmm. niche. And there weren't a lot of people that were doing what he was doing back then. I mean, yeah. he was basically a groundbreaker in that field. Well, and um, to have and the MD. Yeah, he had too. that experience behind it as well. So he was just pretty much undefeatable. Yeah. Like he was the man when it came yeah. to medical malpractice in San Diego. Um, at the time, Betty continued to work part time. She did Tupperware. She did Avon. She was an at home mom, stay at home mm-hmm. mom. Um, but she was doing all these little kind of projects to make money on the side until Dan could really get his business off the ground. Because mm-hmm. when you first start out in a law firm, when you first get hired, you're not making the big bucks. You're making the connections. You're learning your craft. And you're becoming the expert. It takes time to get to the point where you're killing it in that right. particular, whatever field you choose to go in. Because when you get a law license in most states, um, particularly California, you're presumed to be a general practitioner. And then you have to specialize. So oh. if you want to do like patent law, then you got to take a patent law bar exam in addition to the regular bar exam. Really? Yeah. And if you want to do other things, you have to specialize in those things. You have to take classes. You have to study. You have to become sort of an expert in your field. But it's not right away. And yeah. you have to do you know certain courses and do certain educational learning practices to get yourself to stand out as a specialist in your field. So he chose that medical malpractice. And because it's such a complicated and a new field, like it took him a while to kind of, I think, build his Mm -hmm. practice up. And I think um, he ultimately ended up going into practice for himself, like starting his own firm, which is Mm -hmm. what happens. You learn what you need to learn. The the people, the big shots learn what they need to learn. And then they go start their own practice and, Mm -hmm. and make their own money. So they don't have to give a cut to partners and right. They can keep all their own money, but. In any case, spring ahead to the fall of 1982. Dan hires this 21-year-old former flight attendant named Linda Kulkana. Mm-hmm. And she had previously worked for Delta Airlines. And she hires him as, or excuse me, he hires her as his legal assistant. Okay. Which is kind of weird. Number one, she's young, she's pretty, and she doesn't have any legal background. Which is None of that's her fault, though. Super weird. Yeah. Never happens. You don't hire someone with no legal background to be your legal assistant. Like, it's just not, it's not a thing. Okay. Okay. See, I didn't so, know that part. Yeah. It's just not, it, it's highly unusual. And I think Betty noticed that and kind mm-hmm. of asked him about it, was like, hey, what's going on here? Like, does she have legal background? Does she have law experience? Has she ever been in a, does, has she been a secretary? None mm-hmm. of that. Just so it like, wasn't like she was interested in getting into the legal field. Like it was just, he just randomly hires this woman. I think she had been like a secretary or like a receptionist or something in yeah. one of the offices that he had worked in. And he offered her a job as his legal assistant. Okay. 
So she kind of established herself in mm-hmm. all fairness. You know, she was beautiful and charming and had her skills, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it, it's unusual to hire, some, hire someone as your personal assistant in the legal field if you don't have any legal experience. But he thought he could teach her, okay. evidently. But I think there was more to it than that. But yeah. um, Betty suspects pretty early on that her hubby's having an affair with Linda. Yeah. Which, you know, she's this young, pretty girl who he's around all the time mm-hmm. at work, right? I mean, how could you not have some kind of suspicion? But she confronted him, and he denies it. Nope, no affair, you're crazy. He's mm-hmm. beginning this gaslighting mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, why, why would you say that? You know, you're just being paranoid. You're just, you know, you're spending too much time with the kids. Just forget about this crazy idea you have. I'm not having an affair. You're my wife, blah, blah, blah. So he's trying to assure her, but at the same time, making her feel like she's being crazy for yeah. even thinking that. Um, but ultimately, <laughs> and in the, the, the Netflix show, they show her like going into the office and, and watching this woman and like, she goes in a couple times and he's out for the rest of the day and she hears it through the grapevine that he's out with Linda. Mm. Um, and then ultimately I think in the, the, the Netflix show, they show her going for his birthday and with a bottle of champagne to go, she goes into his office to celebrate and he's gone for the day. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, this is, this is not normal. This is not yeah. right. He's definitely having an affair. Um, but Dan moves out February, 1985. So she confronts him. She tells him, hey, it's her or me. You got to get rid of this woman. And he says, okay, I'm going to move out. (laughs) He chooses Linda over his wife. Um, And by that point, they'd been married for, what was it, like 10 years? She might have been 65. So they'd been together for about 20 years. But they, I believe, they married in 1969. So they'd been together for quite a while by that point. So Dan moves out, establishes the date of separation as February 1985. And it's interesting because he got custody of the kids. And the reason for that was because Broderick Betty evidently left the children on his doorstep one by one. Whoa, what? There's sort of a belief that she was like, okay, he's not going to leave me go off with this younger woman and then expect me to raise the kids while he goes off and has all this fun. There's some, you know, speculation and some kind of uh, argument that she had had a rodent problem in her house. So essentially some people say that he was already talking to divorce lawyers long before he separated from her, which a smart lawyer would do getting the 411 on what to do to pad your income, what to do to protect yourself, what to do to ensure that you get what you want out of the divorce. Sure. And he had spoken with the experts and he had gotten all the information he needed to ensure that he was going to come out ahead and that Betty would be the one to have to pay in this divorce. So he's hiding assets. He's, you know, devaluing his business so that when he has to split it with her, he doesn't have to pay her as much. He's doing mm-hmm. all the things that he needs to do to ensure that she's not going to end up ahead. So, Prior to his separation from her, he proposes that they move to this house, this beautiful house with a view of the ocean, and then puts the money down on this house. 
And ultimately, she becomes responsible for that house. And so she's living there thinking initially that they're going to live, they're going to sell their other house, mm-hmm. remodel this one, gut it, remodel it, and live in it. But then they separate, and so she's stuck with this house, doesn't have the money to remodel it. And evidently, she said there were rodent problems in the house, and that's why she couldn't have her kids there. So she dropped the kids off with Dan and said, you know, it's not safe for them to be in this house. But there's also the speculation going on in the background that she didn't want him running off and having all the fun with this young 21-year-old while she's stuck at home raising their four children. Gotcha. Okay. So she drops the kids off with him. Um, Dan then confesses after the divorce proceedings are underway that he'd been having an affair with Linda. <gasps> no. Yeah. I did not so see he that basically coming. had been telling her for years, yeah. I'm not having an affair. You're crazy. This is insane. Why would you say that? You're just bonkers, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, you know what? You were right all along. Wow. Which has got to be just Inferior. a punch in the face. Yeah. It's got to be a punch in the face. You've been with this man for 20 years. You've supported him through medical school, through law school. Like just... You've done everything you can to ensure that this man is successful in his business. You've raised the children. You've sacrificed your own interests in Mm -hmm. life to ensure that this man has a successful career and that his children are raised properly. And then he comes back and says, later days, I'm going to go off with a younger, newer, hotter model. See you later. And the thing is, they looked so much alike. Like, she looked like a younger version of Really? Yeah, blonde, younger, like big smile, pretty girl, beautiful eyes, same as Betty when wow. Betty was younger. Betty was, an att- Betty was a very attractive woman yeah. when she was younger. And she had begun to age. And as we all do, this is the reality of life. You can't stay young and gorgeous forever. Mm-hmm. Life comes, wrinkles come, you gain a little weight. Like, that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. But she had begun to gain weight she'd begun to age like a normal woman would do and dan decided that he just wasn't gonna have that how dare she um so anyway this very protracted and hostile divorce then gets underway and because dan is in the legal field like he knows all the little tricks to do and Broderick versus Broderick is one of the most infamous divorce cases in the U.S., and it still is, um, primarily because there's a lot of issues involving women who worked while they put their husbands through graduate and professional school. There's a calculation that goes into that when they determine alimony and child support and, mm-hmm. and the provi- how much of the assets the wife will get. And California is a community property state, and it's also a no-fault state. So regardless of who decides to end the marriage or who might potentially have an affair, a fault is not attributed to any one person. There is no, that doesn't factor into the divorce. But community property does. And that means that from the time that the couple gets together and and the, the date of their marriage is that date of getting together, all the assets that they built together belong to both of them 50 50. Mm -hmm. So as of the date of separation, which is the date that you make it official that you intend to go through with a divorce, which is their date of separation. When he says I'm out, I'm moving out, Mm -hmm. which was February, 1985. That's the cutoff point. Right. So everything that he has made with her up until that point is community property. 50% hers, 50% his. Unless they had a prenup, right? Yes. But they did not have a prenup. Can impact that. They did not have a prenup. Interesting. And then, Other things can also impact that. And there's something called Epstein credits, which 
it's a complicated sort of thing that I'm not really going to get into. But there are other things that can impact the, the um, proportion of the property for each person, like debt. Mm-hmm. Um, one partner can agree to take on a larger portion of the debt in exchange for um, a larger portion of the community property. Um, if you put a down payment on a home, there's a couple of different things where you can subtract the money that you pay for those things mm-hmm. from the total payout to the other spouse as part of that community property. And I believe that Dan Broderick kind of went like pushed it as far as he could to get as many Epstein credits as he could so that he would have to give a Betty as little as possible. Okay. And he valued the law firm that he created at a value that was much lower than it would have been at the present day when the divorce was actually being finalized. It went through, I believe he had, some people speculate that he had basically devalued the firm, which a lot of spouses do Mm -hmm. when they're going through a divorce. They will, think about it ahead of time and make sure that the company is worth as little as possible so that they don't have to share yeah. a big portion of their company with their spouse. And I worked for a company where the man did that. He basically just ran the company into the ground because he knew he'd have to share 50-50 with his wife and didn't want to share with her. So he wanted it to be worth nothing when they divorced so that she would get nothing from this company. Jeez. So he took this very, very profitable, large trademark licensing company and basically just gutted it. So it was worth nothing so that she would get nothing. Wow. And I think that he didn't do that as Dan Broderick didn't do that as much as he just pushed it so that it was a, as low a value as possible right. and ensure, because I believe that the divorce um, judge can value the company at either the time of separation or at the time the divorce is finalized, which can be years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these divorces are extremely long and protracted and drawn out and can take years to f- settle the property. And essentially, I think he made sure that it was valued when it was as low as possible so that Betty would get as little as possible. And he filed motion after motion after motion after motion in order to ensure that she was going to have to stay in court a lot. And I think it was very difficult for Betty to obtain an attorney because her husband was known. Yeah. And who's going to want to represent this woman when her husband's Dan Broderick, this big time attorney? Well, and the longer she stays in like the process, the more money that costs her. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting. Judges can determine that a spouse has to pay for the legal fees, but that also equals sometimes Epstein credits, which Hmm. can be deducted from the community property. If the husband has to pay for the wife's legal um, representation. But in any case, Dan was a very prominent lawyer by the time this divorce was going through. And he was also serving as the president of the San Diego Bar Association. Wow. So who's going to want to represent Betty Broderick? No one. Yeah. They're they're not going to want to touch that. And he was just cocky as hell, too. There were reports that he called himself the Count du Money. Oh, my. Which, you know, I'm rolling in the money. I'm this prestigious big-time lawyer. I've got this hot young woman at my side. I'm this big-shot lawyer, Should he be, like, calling himself that while he's trying to devalue his own law firm, though? Um, I don't know that that was necessarily during the time of the divorce. Oh, okay. It might have been leading up to the divorce. But oh, okay. he clearly was feeling himself, yeah. right? But again, Betty's at a distinct disadvantage Mm -hmm. because she can't get representation easily. Um, And then also, I don't think she was probably the easiest 
wanting it to work with either. When you watch the the Dirty John special, she's very difficult. Yeah. She doesn't want to come into the court. Um, she doesn't want to participate in mediation. There's just, she's not the most cooperative client. Hmm. And that I don't think is unusual. I practiced family law for roughly five years of my time. And it's not unusual for family law clients to be some of the most difficult in the business. Yeah. There are people that believe that they are due large portions of their spouse's property, even when they've been married a very, very short time, and that doesn't really apply to them. They believe they should get alimony when there's no re- no, no reason they should get alimony. Mm-hmm. Cause you have to be married for a certain amount of time. There are certain factors that have to play into the scenario in order for alimony to apply, at least in the state of California. Yeah. Um, and I've practiced in Washington State and California. So... Um, I've been there. I've been involved in this. I've seen both sides of the spectrum and I've seen, you know, the very, I'd had a lot of Microsoft clients for a while where they would just basically, when they made it big with Microsoft Mm -hmm. and they would just trade their wives in for a new or younger model. Good night. I think there was an eighties and nineties thing. Yeah, it really was. Um, and I think that there's become a lot, you know, the Me Too movement has made people a lot more sensitive to this. And I think that judges and, and courts are now, um, trying to be a little bit more fair mm-hmm. in their determinations with these sorts of cases, but it's interesting. So Betty also was very, very adamant that she thought that Dan was using his prestige within the legal community to win sole custody of the kids, sell their house against her wishes, and basically not allow her to have half of the community property. Yeah. Even though she, I, I think, believed she was entitled to more than that because she had worked her butt off to get him where he was in his career, mm-hmm. right? But, again, she sounds like she was a very difficult client to deal with. It just sounds contentious um, all the way around. It was. Yeah. And when you've got um, a situation where she's having to pay for the legal expenses and he's filing motion after yeah. motion after motion, which is compelling her to go before the, the court which is costing money. Each time you have a court appearance, it costs money. Yeah. Each time you have to see your attorney, those, that's hours that they're billing you. So I think that part of his intention was to make her have to use her attorney as much as possible so that the community property would dwindle mm. and she would get as little as possible. Wow. Right. And in the meantime, though, there's court filings and court paperwork that states that, you know, she was breaking into the house. She was destroying his property. She at one point drove her car into the front of their house because she was pissed off. Like there's just a lot going on. She was not, she was jailed at one point for that. She was trespassing, constantly breaking into, and he was initially living in the house that they had lived in because he got her to move out saying, Oh, we're going to buy this fancy new house and remodel it. And then he separates from her and moves into their, their family home that they had had together. Okay. Wow. Which it's got to really sting. With the new girlfriend, because, yeah. Yeah. Here she is, like, I thought we were going to move out and build this beautiful new home together with a view of the ocean mm-hmm. in La Jolla, and now you're moving back into the family home that we shared for years yeah. with our kids, and now she's replacing me. Yeah. So a lot of contentious action going on in the background, and Betty... I don't think she helped the situation. Yeah. And granted, I think she has reason to be upset. I think she has she had reason to be offended. She had reason to be sad. She had reason to be angry because he didn't make it easy either. Right. But I think divorce is like, it's a common thing for this sort of 
activity be going on. Not necessarily the violence in the background. Right. But uh, it was very contentious. Anger on all sides. Yes. Yeah. But the divorce was ultimately finalized in 1989. And this was four years after Dan had initialized that the separation. So it took four years to finalize the divorce. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, And during that time, Betty is just getting more and more violent. And she is leaving hundreds and hundreds of nasty messages on his answering machine. And back then, that was when they had the answering machine. Mm-hmm. The, tape. the physical machine, yeah. Yeah. And you could take the tape out and have it transcribed, which is what he was doing. He was basically transcribing all of her messages on his answering machine. And that was like her way of kind of having counseling almost. She would call and just mm-hmm. leave these extremely nasty, like profane, mm-hmm. just awful messages on his answering machine and he was able to get numerous restraining orders yeah against her for this reason and she was actually she couldn't set foot on his property because he had a restraining order against her at any given time she vandalized both his old home and his new home and like i said earlier she drove her car into the front door and their kids were in the house at the time she did it yikes so she was taken in and arrested on that. And of course she blames him and mm-hmm. says, you know, this is your fault. If it wasn't for you, this wouldn't be happening, blah, blah, blah. And I think that, you know, her children are being raised by this beautiful young 21 year old woman who your husband has replaced you with. She's got to be feeling extremely angry. Oh, sure. At that point. Um, again, the divorce was finalized in 1989 and then April, 1989, Dan and Linda get married his new wife uh so right just right after the divorce is finalized they get married yeah now linda clacana had been concerned about betty yeah she urged dan to to take it seriously and i think because dan had been with betty for so many years i don't think he took her as serious as linda did yeah i think he was like oh that's just betty you know she's a She's a wild one. You know, she's just angry. I mean, it's all muster. It's all, it's all, you know, she's stormy. It's a lot of thunder, but like, there's no real action behind it. She actually urged him to wear a bulletproof vest to their wedding. Holy cow. That's how serious Linda took it. They had heard at, at some point that Betty had gotten a gun. See, like, I don't know how committed I am to a person if I think... I need to wear a bulletproof vest to my wedding. It just seems you know? crazy. I think Dan at that point was like, you know, she probably feels like she needs to protect. I don't think he thought in a million years that she would use that gun yeah. on him. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, part of the vanity of him just as a person as well. He had gaslighted and convinced Betty for so many years that he wasn't having an affair Mm -hmm. and he'd gotten back together with her on several occasions and kind of gone back and forth and making her believe that their relationship was gonna work Mm -hmm. and they'd gone to counseling at one point and there were just a lot of factors playing into this it wasn't a simple matter of him saying I'm done with you I'm moving on yes he did have a specific separation date in which he had filed the paperwork for But I think there was a lot of action on his part to get what he wanted to try to smooth things over with her to make things as easy as possible. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, he just gave up because he's like, she's just she's driving into the house. What can you do about that? Right. Yeah. So. Betty didn't arrive at the wedding. 
The wedding goes off without a hitch. And everyone just heaves this huge sigh of relief. And Betty says that Linda taunted her by mailing her facial cream and slimming treatment ads. So she's trying to lay groundwork that Mm -hmm. Linda was kind of being incendiary in the background, trying to piss her off, trying to, you know, inflame her, Mm -hmm. which I don't necessarily know that there's any proof that that was happening. Although if I was Linda and this woman was getting away with everything she was getting away with and Dan was just kind of poo-pooing it, yeah, he was filing restraining orders against her and things like that. Yeah, but those are useless. I don't, yeah, I don't think he took it as serious as Linda did. But if I was Linda, I would probably want to get revenge on Betty too for all the stuff that was going on. If she's vandalizing their house and like just terrorizing them. So again, I feel a certain degree of sympathy, but then when you get to the point where you're doing things like leaving profane messages, driving into someone's house with your car, like that's just gone above and beyond the point where you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be mad, but you're not allowed to take it out in a violent way and physically do something like that. Well, like something's happened where she's, she's flipped to no longer think of anything but her anger in that moment. And that's where you always get into trouble, right? I mean, if she's driving into the house while, that her kids are in, like, she, mm-hmm. she's clearly not She's well. not thinking with yeah. any kind of logic. Yeah. yeah. So I guess Betty had bought the gun like a month before Dan and Linda were married. Okay. And Linda had kind of gotten wind of it, I think, there's some kind of speculation that the boys had said something. The children had said something about their mom having a gun. Mm-hmm. And Linda took it a lot more serious than Dan did. But about eight months after Dan and Linda were married, Betty drives to Dan's house. And this is in the Marston Hills neighborhood. And this is near Balboa Park, mm-hmm. which I think it's a more affluent neighborhood. I don't think it's the same way that it's, La Jolla's affluent. La Jolla's kind of that beautiful ocean view kind of a thing, whereas Marston Hills. I got the feeling like it was like old money. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. More like upper crust brick houses yeah. kind of thing, and it's near Balboa Park, which is a beautiful, beautiful area in San Diego, mm-hmm. and that's where Dan and Linda had purchased this new home. They wanted to get away from the one that they had lived in previously, that Betty had vandalized mm-hmm. and all that, but. Betty has a key. Why? She had actually taken the house key from her daughter, Lee, which is her second daughter, Uh to enter the house while Dan and Linda are sleeping. Oh, no. It's about 5.30 in the morning, and she shot and killed both Dan and Linda. It was two days before Betty's 42nd birthday. Two bullets hit Linda in the head and chest. She was killed instantly. One bullet hit Dan in the chest, and I guess he'd lived for a while. He was reaching for the phone. Mm. Another bullet hits the wall. One bullet hits the nightstand, and then Dan passes away shortly thereafter. Dan was 44 years old. He was just, he wasn't even a month shy of his 45th birthday, and Linda was 28. Mm. So she snapped. Yeah. She just yeah. snapped. And I'm not specifically, I mean, there's speculation in the, the show. I don't know how much of that is real, but, um, there's evidence that was presented as well that Betty removed the phone and answering machine from the bedroom. So he couldn't call. I've heard that too. And I don't know. 
I don't know whether she removed it, you know, just ripped it out yeah. of the wall before she shot them or if she did it beforehand. I'm not yeah. sure. But there, there's that was presented at trial. Um, and then the medical evidence as well said that Dan hadn't died right away. And Betty says she spoke to him after she shot him. And I think that's important because she later claims that she didn't know they were dead. Like, she just had gone there to kill herself is what mm-hmm. she claimed. She was so mad and she was so upset that she was going to go kill herself. Mm-hmm. And she wanted him to talk to her before she did that. Mm-hmm. Right. And the only way to get him to talk to her was to go into his bedroom at 530 in the morning, evidently, because there was no other way she could get him. To well, talk. I mean, but he's anyway. got restraining orders against her. I mean, I, like, I don't mean to make it her action seem logical. I'm just like. Like, I, I'm trying to imagine how she could get there, and it's just really hard to imagine how you get there. But um, but after some conversation with a couple of different people, Betty turns herself in, and she never denies that she shot five mm-hmm. times. And, again, her explanation was that she had not premeditated this. She never planned to kill them, that she was going to commit suicide, and she heard Linda screaming, call the police, and then just panicked and fired the gun. So she's claiming, like, she temporarily blacked out and, like, doesn't really... Yeah, she's yeah. panicked. Okay. Yeah. Um, temporary yeah. insanity, right? Dan and Linda were buried together in the Greenwood Memorial Cemetery in San Diego. Betty gets attorney Jack Early to represent her at trial. Evidently, he's a big shot attorney in San Diego okay. at the time. Criminal attorney. And immediately, Betty sets up this battered wife defense. Uh-huh. Which I think was relatively new in yeah. that period of time. It wasn't something that was used all the time. She claims she was driven mm-hmm. to this point of exploding by years of psychological, physical, and mental abuse mm-hmm. from Dan. Now, the prosecution, on the other hand, believes that she planned and schemed to kill Dan over the period of a long period of time. This was completely premeditated, and she was not mm-hmm. a battered woman. Got the doctors, the experts come in, they talk about it. They say, the experts say that Betty has histrionic and narcissistic personality disorders. And I think we've talked about histrionic disorders before. Um, Just about being hysterical. overly dramatic. And just being a power. Yeah. Yeah. Being a power, powder cake ready to explode at any moment. Being very dramatic. um, Reacting in a very dramatic way to everything. Which, again, she drove into his front door with her car so that does seem to fit clearly she was given to yeah to mm-hmm. some dramatics right betty goes to trial mm-hmm. okay she really really plays on that battered mm-hmm. wife thing and i think she sort of was claiming that although he had not physically left marks on her that there was the years of gaslighting which again in all fairness i right. think there was some gaslighting going on I think that Dan got what he wanted out of that situation, and then when he was ready to leave and get that younger, younger newer yeah. model, he did that. <clears throat> Does he deserve right. to die for that? No. Does he deserve to have his property destroyed for that? No. Does he deserve to have someone drive a car into his house? No. But I think that it definitely was a situation that created this mm-hmm. explosion, right? And I think the biggest thing for this was a lack of intent. And the jury really, really struggled with trying to find mm-hmm. that intent so that they could show. And I think that there was really 
sort of the jury believed that it was either premeditated murder or nothing. Mm. So that it, there wasn't any kind of secondary stuff that they were able to okay. rule for, or they were able to um, call this, yeah. right? So hung jury. Two of the jurors held out for manslaughter. They were saying yeah. there's no intent, right? And in a murder trial, you have to, everyone right. has to agree. It has to be a full 12-man agreement, and two held out. So that's a hung jury. It's a mistrial. Betty is then retried a year later. She has the same defense attorney and prosecutor, and the second trial mm-hmm. is like a replay, just exactly the same. But the problem is, when you have a case like this, the prosecution is going to read through every single line oh, yeah. of every transcript out there. They're going to look at every piece of evidence with a critical eye. They are going to find any loopholes that got missed the first time around, and they Absolutely. are going to drive in on the areas they were weak. They are going to strengthen this case, and they are going to do everything they can to get a, a prosecution yeah. on, to get a verdict in their favor on for the second trial. And that's what they did. Well, it's the one try. It's the one time a prosecution gets a do-over. Yep. Yep. I mean. Um, and again, the jury goes in and I think that there was some speculation that it might be because she was a sympathetic figure in many ways, mm-hmm. especially during the first trial. And I think people can sympathize with a woman who's worked her butt off to put her husband through school and ensure he has a successful career, and raise her children and then gets nothing out of it. I think that she's a sympathetic figure. Sure. Right. But at the same time. I think that they're starting to, the second trial, they put in a lot more of her actions in the bedroom, pulling out the phone, yeah. like her violent, angry outbursts, her the voicemails. hundreds and hundreds of, of messages yeah. on his answering machine and things like that. They pull more of that in the second time around. Yeah. And the jury returns a verdict with two counts of second degree murder, which again, is interesting. So it wasn't first degree, it was second mm-hmm. degree. So there's some amount of she's doing this because she's having that temporary burst versus she's planning ahead and planning this murder for weeks in advance. It's reactionary. Right. uh, Betty was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 15 years to life plus two years for illegal use of a firearm, which was the maximum under the law at that time. Okay. And she is currently in jail. She Mm -hmm. is at the California Institution for Women, CIW, in Chino, California. And essentially, it's interesting because she got two terms of 15 years to life, which mm-hmm. meant, you know, she could have been out, you know, she got parole pretty quickly because in January 2010, she has her first request for parole, right? Mm-hmm. And she's denied by the Board of Parole Hearings. And the reason she's denied is because she doesn't show remorse and she did not acknowledge any wrongdoing, okay? We've mm-hmm. talked about this before. You, when you're going up in front of a parole board on a case like this where you're eligible for parole on a murder case, right? Even yeah. if it's a second-degree man's daughter, second-degree murder, you have to show remorse. You have to accept responsibility for your actions. And you have to convince them that that's the case. Yeah. She didn't do that. And she was denied parole accordingly, right? Mm-hmm. And you she said it's also, 15 to life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, which means she could be in there forever mm-hmm. if they deny her parole. Mm-hmm. So she is in, got a minimum of 15 years before she's eligible for parole in this case. And in a lot of instances, they'll they'll be eligible for parole earlier. But I believe her trial happened in like 1991. So if she went to prison then, that would be 20 years. She's only 20 years before she gets her first parole. Right. 
So you don't have to serve your whole before you're eligible for parole. But that would mean that she was serving part of her second consecutive 15 to life because otherwise she would have been up for parole prior to the 15 years. Right, so that must mean that she, they don't have to serve the whole period before they're eligible for parole. I think, that's, I think it's like 85% or something crazy like that. Maybe, I think it's 70%. Oh, okay. I think it's actually lower because of overcrowding in prisons. Mm. But in any case, she has her second hearing for parole in 2011, and she's denied again. Mm-hmm. And then she's denied again January 2017. And I think once you hit that three denials point, then you got to wait a long time sure. before you get another parole try. And I think her next hearing is January 2032. Whoa. And she may That's be a really gone long by time. <laughs> she may be gone by yeah. then. Wow. This case has been the topic of so many shows, yeah. so many podcasts, so many articles. It's crazy. Like there's so much information out yeah. there about it. Like so if you you want to hear more information on it, there I encourage you to go do your research, go watch the Dirty John. And granted, the Dirty John episode is it's got a little embellishment, mm-hmm. but supposedly the Dirty John story features more of Betty's side of it. Yeah, than a lot of other ones, right? Yeah, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna watch that because I hadn't seen it yet. It's it's really really interesting. I highly recommend yeah. it. Um, and then Betty was involved in several criminal and civil cases, um, and then a wrongful death suit mm-hmm. for Dan and Linda. So there's a lot of lawsuits going on that. So there was a property damage case filed by Dan. Yeah. October 1st, 1975. Yeah. So I think that was like a fire case or something. That was with Dan and Betty. They, she was involved in this. Dan and Betty, not Dan and Linda. There was a personal injury auto case filed against Betty, April 20th, 1989. So I think she was involved in an mm-hmm. auto accident. There was a double homicide mm-hmm. case, obviously the death. Um, that was the, the criminal case in 1990. And then there was a civil complaint filed by Betty Broderick, June 20th, or 28th, 1990. There was the wrongful death suit against Betty Broderick filed November 2nd, 1990. And I believe that was by Linda's family. Right. There was a second wrongful death suit against Betty Broderick filed November 2nd, 1990. There's a personal injury case against Betty Broderick filed September 18th, 1991. And then Betty Broderick sued the county of San Diego, September 21st, 1992. For what? I think she was alleging that she was unfairly treated oh. or like something was... Yeah, this was against the Las Colinas Women's Detention Facility. Oh. Hmm. Just unfairly treated in prison or something of that nature. But it's not surprising that Linda's family or the estates of the people she killed would go after her. It was yeah. such a hugely popular case that I'm sure she she sold the story. She made some money. She had to have made some money off of it. And they were, they were talking in the Dirty John about how she was getting a lot of letters and fan mm-hmm. mail and book requests and interview requests. And she did a lot of interviews. Yeah. She really did. I think she was like in People Magazine and like Dateline and all kinds of different things. So she made some money off of it. Wow. And there's the whole Son of Sam thing. But when did that go through? That had to have gone through prior to that. The Son of Sam law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Son of Sam was late 70s. But the court ruled, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Really? Yeah. Hmm. It would have prevented the publication of such works as the autobiography of Malcolm X, Thoreau's Civil Dis- Disobedience, and the Confessions of St. Augustine. 
Similarly, hmm. the state of California son of Sam Law was struck down in 2002 after being used against Barry Keenan, one of the men who kidnapped Frank Sinatra Jr. in 1963. <laughs> after numerous well. revisions, New York adopted new son of Sam Law in 2001. This law requires the victims of crime be notified whenever a person convicted of a crime received $10,000 or more from any source. Oh. So, Interesting. I think that currently it's not set so that the person can't make profit off it, but there are certain notifications that need to be made to certain individuals involved in the case so they can initiate little civil proceedings of their own if they need to, to pay for right. it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, and I don't know what the outcome of those cases against um, Betty Broderick were, but I mean... I would bet adverse. Pretty bonkers. It's a bonkers case. She yeah. snapped. She snapped. Yeah, and you know, the thing about the battered woman syndrome, that's a very real thing. The gaslighting she experienced is a very real thing. But it becomes really hard to argue that once they're no longer living together. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, not that it can't still happen. It just becomes really difficult to argue that when you take away the abuse of stimulus. I don't know. I don't know. I felt this case on like a deeper level because you're with somebody for 20 years. You love them with everything you have in them. Yeah. And then they tell yeah. you, I don't want you anymore. That That's a oh, painful, sure. I mean, painful, just heart wrenching, just life altering thing. Yeah. And I feel her. I feel yeah, her. I mean, Does it allow her to go out and drive her car into his house? No. Does it justify right. murdering him? No. But I felt her pain. I felt it. Well, it's like you said, she's sympathetic. She's a sympathetic character. Her pain and her anger is understandable. The actions that she took to manage those and to respond to those are not understandable. But on the other hand, how do you deal with someone like that? She was a difficult person. She wouldn't go to counseling. She wouldn't mm-hmm. accept help from anyone. Like She wasn't wanting to fix it. It was like she mm-hmm. was pissed off with justifiable reason, but she wasn't willing mm-hmm. to do anything to fix it. And I thought to myself, when I watched this, she was an attractive young woman. She was like 42 years old. She had a lot of good years left. She could have gone and found somebody else. She had a nice house. She had you know, a good ability to make income on her own. She could have gone and found another man just as great as Dan Broderick. She could have had a nice life. Yeah, I mean, I I just kind of wonder, like, with her upbringing, if she thought that, like, like it's one and done. You know what I mean? Like, with being a strict Catholic, that very much. I don't be know. The case. If maybe they thought it could be right. Like, that's that's your one shot, and and I can identify with that as well. I come from a very religious background. My family was extremely um, religiously inclined, and that was sort of the way mm-hmm. they looked at it. There was no such thing as divorce. You yeah, married. You marry for life, and particularly in the Roman yeah. Catholic religion, like th- there yeah. is no divorce. That's <laughs> not an option. And yeah. and in many instances, there were people that had been forced to go through a divorce for various reasons who still didn't consider themselves divorced because they didn't agree to the divorce or want the divorce. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an interesting case, and I feel yeah. for Betty. I don't think she's ever going to get parole because I think she is stubborn. And I think she's unwilling to admit her fault in any of this. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a lot of people that think, you know, she's aged out of criminal 
behavior and now the, the main reason for her criminal behavior is gone that there's no reason why she would be a threat to society but there's other people who say she's just bonkers and she hasn't received any psychological help to assist with that mm -hmm. while she's been in prison she refuses to accept responsibility and to take um responsibility for her portion of this so there's no reason that she should be around on the outside so yeah which i mean i get that like i get the argument that she's lot unlikely to act violently again because she already murdered the two people that she felt grieved by but she, she like her behavior leading up to that was already so yes. erratic and it was so yes. unexpected prior to that and she's not made any no. adjustments to that that how do you trust that that won't happen again yeah. with a new trigger you know how do you know she's not gonna you get pissed I mean? off at the grocery checker for smushing her bread in the grocery yeah. bag and and if, drive and her if car she's not making store. any effort yeah. to yeah and if she's not making any effort to uh, take responsibility or show remorse for any, for what she's already done. To why would we believe alleviate that... this behavior? She's not seeking any right. form of treatment, which is the alarming right. part about the whole thing. And it's interesting to kind of see her children's viewpoints as well. I, I think that I was gonna say yeah, like what's going on with her kids? They try to be supportive of because... her, but I think that there's just no way that you can. You know, they know she's their mother, and I think the the boys mm -hmm. are less willing to kind of deal with what she's turned into than the girls. But hmm. I think that they provide a limited element of support to her because she's their mother. She birthed mm -hmm. them. But I don't mm -hmm. think that there's a whole lot of hardcore support on their part because she killed their father and their stepmother. Right. While they and were in the house. she refuses to take responsibility I mean, for it. If she had showed remorse yeah. and accepted responsibility for yeah. her actions, I think her children would be a little bit more willing to be more supportive of her and finding a resolution and helping her to get that treatment she needs to deal with this mm -hmm. problem. She's got a psychological mm -hmm. problem. You don't snap and kill someone if you don't have a psychological problem, right? This doesn't come out right. of the blue. And I mean, at some point, like, there, there was a time when she either had the thought or didn't have the thought. And if she didn't have the thought, that's a whole other issue altogether. But at some point, she had to decide, presumably, do I care more about my anger at my ex-husband or do I care more about my kids? Because she put her kids she in did. danger with some of those and actions. And I think that when you watch and the Netflix special, you'll see there were so many instances where she showed herself as being selfish, narcissistic. Yeah like self-involved because everything was about Betty and how she felt and not about yeah. anybody else. And, and how she was vic like victimized. Yes. And, and it was like, yeah. I'm the victim. Woe is me. I'm the martyr. Yeah. Everybody needs to pay attention to me because I'm the one wronged here in all instances. Mm -hmm. She failed mm -hmm. to even see any consequences of her actions towards anyone else she was dealing with. You know, for right. instance, she got pissed off. She drops the kids off at his house. She doesn't see how that's impacting the children. She only sees that yeah. he's off having fun. He needs to be the one to take care of these kids. Why should he have all the fun Yeah, <clears throat> without me? <clears throat> right. As opposed to doing what's best for exactly. the kids. Which was not considered. It doesn't sound like it was considered no. by anybody. And if she here. had really been thinking about her children, she would have realized the impact that taking a... To Number one, purchasing a gun. Number two, taking into the house and killing yeah. her husband. Anyway, let's go ahead and wrap the episode up. This is a long one. Please shoot us an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. If you want to factually correct us, I'm certainly happy to do that as well. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So we post 
uh, pictures and show notes and all that stuff there. Um, better at Instagram than Twitter, but I'm getting getting better, getting back into the groove of things. Me too. I posted some pictures this week, so I saw I'm that. impressed with myself. Um, and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>